You're listening to Mr. Open Banking, the only podcast dedicated to exploring the open banking movement. Whether you're a financial expert, banking executive, or everyday consumer, open banking affects everyone and will change the way we interact with our money. I'm A.L. Savan, your host. This episode is brought to you by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years. On today's episode, we're going to explore the following question. Is open banking exclusively a set of laws and regulations? After all, wide use of the term open banking can be traced back to a European law, the Revised Payment Services Directive, or PSD2, an act passed by the EU in 2015 that aimed to protect consumers, drive competition, and promote innovation in the banking sector. Ultimately, that law is what drove the explosion of open banking activity that Europe is experiencing today, and that other countries are moving quickly to emulate. So, as a result of this government-driven history, many people automatically equate open banking with regulation. But today, we're going to challenge that assumption. We're going to discover how one region is trying to get there without any regulation at all. And maybe we'll find that a market-driven approach might just be the better way. The United States remains home to one of the most innovative financial sectors in the world. U.S. fintech activity continues to thrive, U.S. banks are laser-focused on digital innovation, and U.S. companies still handle the vast majority of global payments. However, there still remain over 10,000 financial institutions in the U.S. that need to be stitched together, and no easy, secure, standardized way to do so. Enter the Financial Data Exchange, or FDX, a not-for-profit organization that aims to unify the U.S. financial industry around a common interoperable standard for secure access to financial data, and to do so in a way that is fundamentally market-driven. Our guest on the show today is the Managing Director of FDX, Don Cardinal. Prior to joining FTX, Don spent over 10 years in traditional financial services at organizations such as Bank of America, the University of Incarnate Word, and Thomas Reuters. In 2019, Don testified before the U.S. Congress to advocate for the future of financial technology, encouraging the empowerment of consumers to take control of their financial data. Thanks for coming on the show, Don. My pleasure. So why don't we start with you telling our listeners a little bit about the origins of FTX? FDX started out through a couple different efforts. One through the FSISAC, which is a global consortium of financial services firms that are working to share data for cybersecurity. And they realized that this legacy data sharing model that had been around for, gosh, 25 years and required the sharing of IDs and passwords is really probably not the most secure way of doing things. And they had tried for a while to get the industry to move to this whole tokenized RESTful API model, but had limited success. And in parallel, the fintechs were also doing the same thing. They were saying, hey, listen, holding millions of customers' IDs and passwords, probably not the best idea. We really would like to have data access through an API. It's better for everyone. But they were having trouble getting the FIs on board. And in 2018, both sides threw in together and said, hey, listen, let's work together. Let's work on behalf of our common customer to move to a modern architecture and make it lower risk for everybody. And in October 2018, we went live with, I think, 24 member organizations. We've since grown to 115 organizations, and we've migrated about 12 million consumers to this new architecture. So 
what you're saying is there were groups working on this problem of an interoperability standard for financial services prior to FDX. Let's start there. What problem is it they were trying to solve? The what's in it for me, the WIFM was slightly different for each group. So if you were a bank or a brokerage, you were seeing a lot of sessions every day hitting your online and mobile banking interface that were not human, that were known third-party software, and they were coming in with customers' IDs or passwords. And we know kind of an industry standard, about 25% of their daily sessions are not humans. So that's a lot of infrastructure to paint screens for something that's not going to read them. It just wants the data. And similarly, we do know that most organizations see about 10% of their online volume, their online customer base, share their IDs and passwords with one or more fintech apps. And so from a risk and privacy perspective, in today's day and age, that's something that had to be really looked into. Hey, guys, we can't do nothing about this. This has been ongoing for a long while. Wouldn't it be great if? Whereas if you're a fintech app, right now you're getting data by having to hold customer credentials, not an ideal situation. And you're having to impersonate or log in on behalf of the consumer. That access can be troublesome in that it's not always available. The data is not always uniform. And so your raw material, if you will, to do a budgeting app or to do someone's taxes or to make a credit decision isn't always available in a uniform manner. And so they have a need for basically a better data source, a more reliable data source, and one that doesn't require you to do the risky thing of holding customer IDs and passwords. So the WIFM is slightly different, but it's neat that it's a common purpose to solve that. This sounds like what is often described as screen scraping. Is that the same thing? It can be. Scraping is a big piece of it, but there are some folks who, because they're effectively have good relationships with the FIs, use an ID and password, and then make a different style request against their back end, but it's still an ID or credential-based access. But I think for the purpose of this discussion, we can call it screen scraping for now. You're talking about access through the APIs exposed for the mobile applications and sometimes the web, right? Yes, that's entirely correct. We do have some more technical listeners. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. So right now, if you wanted to get a piece of data about AL and you knew where you banked, you could technically pretend you were an online banking session, go to that, write a script that pulls up the web browser, paste in the ID or password, maybe paste in a challenge question, and then you can start scrolling through those screens to retrieve data elements, your balance for your current accounts, your last 10 days of transactions, what have you. Similarly, you don't have to just do it against a online banking site. You could actually hit a mobile API as well and use the same sort of ID-based access for that. It has its issues, which is why we're going to a dedicated application programming interface or API. It sounds like fascinating work you're doing. Can you describe for our audience how it's been going? What kind of numbers are you seeing in terms of adoption? One of the things you want to do is see how many firms have downloaded your spec to use it, and you're not required to join to get a copy of our spec. So we have about 140 firms that have downloaded our spec. We have 115 member organizations as of this morning. And by pulling our members, we do periodic surveys and we ask them, hey, how many consumers have you migrated to this tokenized access? And the number we got last time we we got a complete count was about 12 million. That's good news. The less IDs and passwords are floating out there, the safer everybody is. The job security for me is there's probably another 88 to 100 million left to go in North America. Think about that for a second. 100 million usernames and passwords in North America alone, all providing access to real bank accounts, all floating around out there, in the databases of various fintechs 
without any clear guidance around risk management or liability. This approach, what Don calls credential sharing, is used the world over. This proves two things. First, there is a significant risk that currently exists in the system. As today, all of these banks and fintechs are sharing data using unreliable, inefficient, and worst of all, insecure methods. And second, the demand is there. It's real. People want to share their financial data if it means getting better financial products. They just want to do it in a safer way. And that's exactly what FDX is trying to achieve. What's interesting is that's also what open banking is trying to achieve. But you may have noticed that even though we've been talking about the development of a standard for banks to share data, the actual term open banking has so far not been mentioned. The fact is, the term open banking is not very widely used in the U.S. Here's Don explaining why. Well, I think it comes down to semantics. In most jurisdictions around the world, open banking, capital O, capital B, refers to a government-mandated regime that the participants, they set their architecture and a variety of other controls. In North America, we have a market-based solution. The idea being no one can be as close to the consumer as the people who actively depend on them for their livelihood. And market-based solutions tend to be durable. Market-based solutions tend to be highly react to consumers. So if you look at the success of solutions like Bluetooth or Fido, again, they're done because there's a driving need for them. So if we do refer to it as open banking, it's little o, little b. I think a more accurate term is consumer permission data sharing. Ideally, that's what it is. And it's all about consumers being in control to have access to their data in a secure manner. Interesting. You shifted the term from a focus on banking to a focus on consumer rights. Do you see any parallel to the work you're thinking of and what's being done in Australia under the consumer data right? Well, we're certainly monitoring the CDR. It's a bit more encompassing than what we're trying to do here with financial data exchange, but we are mindful of their user experience. And if you look, open banking or the permission data sharing is a fairly tight group around the planet. There are a lot of similarities. If you look at CDR, they're using a lot of what UK open banking did. Everyone is using OpenID Connect, OIDC for their security stack. So we're mindful of that, but I think CDR has a few more things that are policy related and more privacy related. We're, we're hyper-focused as a tech standards body on, the, again, the data sharing, the data movement itself. So let's take a step back. I purposely brought up the CDR because although it's also focused on consumer data, right, it is heavily regulatory driven and is much broader than just the banking sector. As you described, FDX is taking a much more market driven approach. Do you feel that government has any role to play in defining these standards? Well, certainly our regulators in the U.S. and Canada are engaged. We brief them on a routine basis back when we could travel. They are highly interested. Again, that's why I was testifying in front of Congress, why we routinely visit the regulators. But because of our success, because of the fact we've been able to make such good progress at no expense to the taxpayer and at no cost to the consumer, they're very much of good job, keep us informed, carry on. And that shows a degree of maturity and restraint. But that being said, regulatory clarity is very important. End of the day, programmers, engineers have to program to a binary state, a digital state, ones and zeros. And so to the extent that there's any regulation or pronouncements that are unclear, it's very difficult to code to that. So 
while we can't comment on regulation or policy, we can get clarifications on rules so that our engineers and our members' engineers can code to something. We're all on board with that. Do you think that there are some efforts to slow the development of the standard down because it affects the competitiveness of some of the established players? Not at all, because again, we focused on common purpose. Nobody wants held away IDs and passwords. They're a risk item that, quite honestly, we all want to get rid of. And as I mentioned earlier in some of my responses, the whiff and the what's in it for me may be different for different parties, but at the end of the day, it all leads to a common purpose, and that is permissioned tokenized access through an API to make it better for everyone. And as long as you're focused on common purpose, you can bring a very large tent of people, like I said, 115 organizations together and move towards a common goal. You define that common goal as ultimately risk reduction. Are there those that are also seeing the upside of this, the opportunity to innovate? Absolutely. Again, I've been involved in online banking since the early 2000s with a military boutique bank service, men and women in uniform and their families. And I became aware of data sharing and it was simply just feeding budgeting apps and perhaps even doing your taxes. But now we have things like Experian Boost, where based on your transaction history, people who traditionally had no credit file or very thin one could still be accurately scored or more accurately scored and given access to credit, they probably wouldn't have had. So those are neat innovations out there as a result of this. And I think you'll see other new things as this data gets used. One of the other advantages is for new account opening. I'll give you an example. Let's say you apply for a mortgage. In a traditional world, you have to download and scan and email or fax in bank statements, right? As you're using for collateral. That leads to optical character, OCR and fax errors, rekey errors that people are manually keying them in. And we saw in 2008, occasionally consumers fudge those numbers. Well, what if you could get that data in machine adjustable form directly from an authoritative source of record? There's no chain of custody issues. There's no rekey errors. And that gives you the ability to make a much more accurate decision much more quickly. So better, faster, cheaper. That's a big win on the revenue side. You're talking about sharing data in a standard format via API, the reduction of risk that comes with that, the opening up of innovation that comes with that. It certainly sounds like open banking to me. But let's leave the name aside. Do you think that the approach being taken by FDX in developing a standard and the approach being taken by others in developing similar standards, by whatever name, are all heading in the same direction? The answer is thematically, yes. If you look, we're all using RESTful APIs. We're all making JSON request responses. Those that use the redirect flow are all using OpenID Connect for the connectivity. It's an extension of the OAuth 2 tokenization. So on security, I think we're highly aligned. Data elements, I think it's getting there. I think we're all approaching this in a similar fashion. Let me ask one that perhaps is a little provocative. Do you think that the standards will ultimately consolidate around a global standard? And does FDX have global aspirations? We're just trying to solve what our members want. We exist for our members. And as a servant leader, I'm committed to follow the direction of my members. We certainly want to make sure as they do business in multiple jurisdictions and you almost in a technological world, in a financial world, you almost can't limit what you do in any one jurisdiction. We want to make sure our spec will support them no matter where they go. Again, we believe best idea wins. We have some unique advantages built in. Because we're member-driven and member-supported, we're not dependent on any one government for funding, no annual budget battles and that sort of thing. In addition, we have an opportunity to be more sustainable because we're not tied to any one jurisdiction. So those are some native things that we think Bluetooth and FIDO are good examples. 
But I think at the end of the day, the market will see what works. Has FDX expanded anywhere beyond the U.S. to date? Sure. We have members in Canada. We have members in the UK, in Europe, EMEA, APAC. We have folks around the planet, truly. You know, again, we love talking about what we do, sharing what we do. And a lot of firms are pleasantly surprised that actually they get a chance to drive the ship, if you will, and have a voice and such a large voice. There are a lot of smaller firms that punch way above their weight by participating. One of the examples I use is if you've got kids in school, you have a parent-teacher organization, and it's usually the same three, four families that show up and volunteer and do everything. And well, because they participate so much, they kind of pick what fundraiser you're going to get to do. Very similarly, firms that are active help influence the direction. doesn't matter what size you are. Again, best idea wins. The kind of member-driven approach Dawn is describing is the way most technical standards are developed. Working groups meet, and based on open participation and frank discussions, the best ideas win. Contributions are approved by democratic process rather than a central authority. Ideas are tested by the market, which decides what works and what doesn't. He mentioned HTTP and Bluetooth as examples. Make no mistake, this approach works. It's led to the development of most of the standards we see around us, both within and outside technology. But when we start talking about banking standards, that means we're talking about money how it moves around, and the massive market opportunity which that creates. This can potentially lead to conflicting goals, as I discuss with Don. Isn't there a bit of a Jekyll and Hyde situation with some of your members, where on the one hand, they gain their value by creating solutions that leverage password sharing and the more risky ways of sharing data. On the other hand, they sit on your boards and are trying to move towards this standard. This puts them in a bit of an innovator's dilemma, don't you think? Not really. I mean, they have to keep the lights on for right now. And by having access any way that they can, they are able to innovate and create net new things. For example, Experian Boost was built on a data sharing model that was largely powered by credentials. Now, as we move to APIs, the data will be more quickly available, more uniform, more highly available. And so that's a good thing. And I think more and more firms will make that data available. So a broader data set as well. So I think it's an interim step. And I want to give you an example. MagStripe on your credit card has been around for, what, 40, 45 years? We all agree that it had some concerns. It was older tech. But the EMV chip is just now passing its 10th year, and we still have MagStripe readers out there. Not everyone has moved. I don't think anyone would accuse the gas stations or whomever else, mom and pop merchants, of having dual purpose. They're just trying to keep the lights on, keep things running until they can get to a more secure, less risky state. What do you think is preventing them from getting there faster relative to other markets? The U.S. famously still supports things like the mag stripe quite widely and even carbon paper swiping of credit cards. Consider it's 330 million Americans. There are probably over 13,000 different quote, financial institutions, when you consider banks, brokerage, insurance, investments, credit unions, and the like. So this is very different than a hyper-concentrated market where you have nine or six or even four FIs with 90% of the share. And to that extent, it is very different. I think there's a viewpoint that the market will do things. They want to do things in a non-disruptive way. Remember when online banking was rolled out, not everybody had it at once. And online banking 1.0, if you go back that far, was typically just your balances. Maybe an innovator would add 
you know, a month's worth of transactions. But it certainly was a robust suite of services and near virtual branch replication we have today. But I think we're in that same sort of boat where we're doing it very slowly, very cautiously. If tech firms have a fail fast mentality, financial services can't fail ever. And so there's a big difference there. Let's go down that road. Even though the U.S. is highly distributed market, there are still a handful of dominant players. In 2008, during that crisis, those players were accused of being too big to fail. In some circles, open banking was considered a reaction to that kind of concentration. Despite the lack of regulation, does FDX have a similar de-risking the economy, level the playing field, distribute the wealth sort of element to it? Or is that really not present? Well, we're a tech standards body, mostly staffed by engineers from the representative member firms. We're trying to solve a tech problem. How do we get those pesky IDs and passwords from floating around in the ether? How do we get everyone onto a much more modern and structured API so there's better and more reliable data going forward? Also, by having a unified standard to pull data from, when we're writing that fintech app, you and I don't need to spend our round one startup funds on a dozen engineers to build custom interfaces to the top 30 banks. We build one interface and we just change the URL we point to. And so startup funds go further. So that really levels the data access playing field to even the smallest firms. And in particular, FinTech startups that are staffed by women and persons of color. Harvard Business School last fall put out a study that showed that the initial seed funding for minority and and women-owned FinTechs still don't attract the amount of funding that other groups do. So something that levels the playing field like FDX really helps that funding go further faster and allows more minority and POC fintechs really play in the game. So despite there not being a regulatory or legislative element, there is very much a, quote, fairness side to this. Very much so. The acronym we have is CATS, C-A-T-T-S. So control, the customer should be in control of what data they share with whom, for what purpose, and for what duration. Access. You should be able to have reasonable access or allow reasonable access to your own personal financial data. Transparency. You should see who's got access to that. And as an aside, you'll see dashboards showing up, Wells Fargo's Control Tower, Bank America Security Center. I know PNC, US Bank, and some others are also creating dashboards so you can see who you've permissioned. Traceability. The idea is every stop along the way, just like a subway map, you should be able to have an idea and the player should have an idea of when and where the data request came from and where it's going. And of course, security. We are in a trust-based ecosystem. Without trust, we really don't have financial services anywhere on the planet. And so security underpins every aspect of that. And you almost can't do those things unless you build them out evenly for all. And that's the wonderful thing about you know tech standards. They work for everyone. HTTP, HTTPS work for everyone. USB works for everyone. Bluetooth works for everyone. Cats, a useful acronym for remembering five key principles to follow when developing an effective open banking standard. Little O, little B, of course. Let's go over the list again. C, control. A, access. T, transparency. Second, T, traceability and S, security. Don did an excellent job of describing each, so I won't repeat it. But is the U.S. on the right track? Is everybody playing ball? Are all the right players involved? Here's Don answering some provocative questions on that front. A recent report from Juniper Research 
says that the number of open banking users worldwide is going to double by 2021. However, that same report says that a, quote, lack of central regulatory intervention in the U.S. was likely to limit the potential growth there. What would you say to that, Don? Well, I have about 12 million reasons why I would disagree. When we poll our members of FTX, and there's over 115 organizations now, they indicate that 12 million of their customers have made the migration to tokenized API style access. As I mentioned in one of my earlier answers, that still leaves us about 88 to 100 million left to go, but it's a non-zero amount. Some people describe the U.S. as a laggard in open banking. How would you respond to them? Apart from the 115 member organizations we have working toward it and growing, and apart from the 12 million consumers we have who are on this journey and more going, and we've done that in 18 months, I'd say the delta or the path forward, if you do that dotted line forward, is rather strong. So I think the hard evidence points to the contrary. Let's talk about the GAFAs. You're increasingly starting to see large technology companies, the Googles and the Apples of the world, introduce financial services that compete head-on with the banks. Last year, Goldman Sachs and Apple launched the Apple Card, described as the most successful launch of a credit card in history. Are they on the FDX board? Do they also want to move towards a standard, or are they trying to create moats around their own services? Well, neither Google nor Apple are members of FDX yet. Love to see them because we cast a big tent. We want firms of all shapes and sizes, really all products to be as part of this decision-making process. Now, our APIs are available. Data can be shared really with any party that has access. So that's the good news about it. So PayPal is a member. They recently joined this year. So I think we're starting to see some non-traditional players take part in the space. And why not? Again, a provocative question. Why do you think they are not joining? Do you think it is a matter of building moats that they're trying to explicitly not adopt a standard? Honestly, I think given that we're only not quite two years old, it's a matter of getting on the radar and uh, it's really a matter of them dedicating the resources to do it and uh, hopefully they'll find value. Uh, We'd love for them to look at what we've got going on. To those out there who say the U.S. is behind in open banking, Don begs to differ and has strong adoption numbers to back it up. More and more American consumers are demanding innovative financial services. More and more providers are moving towards standardized, secure API access, and FDX membership continues to grow, although the GAFAs are conspicuously absent. All this with no regulation. More importantly, even though this is a market-driven approach, the larger philosophy of open banking, the idea that customers should own their financial data, is clearly still very present in the FDX mission. Don, what's wrong with banks and other firms owning my data? Why is it so important to empower the consumer to own their data? Well, think about this. Your money's in deposit at a bank, right? They're a custodian of it. They're certainly regulated. At the end of the day, it's a demand deposit. You have the right to demand your deposits. You know, they're a custodian of your financial data. Now they have some proprietary data about inferences and things like that, neither here nor there, but it's been fairly clear that consumers have a right to their own data. Yes, I went to Starbucks yesterday, or yes, I'm spending too much on groceries or whatever. And so I think we're seeing a lot of innovation around that. But I don't think that's necessarily provocative. I think technology is really catching up with a model that's been out there and, if you will, following the money. 
do you think consumers are realistically going to care? Are they going to manage who owns their data and who has access to it? Well, a couple points on that. There have been a couple surveys in the marketplace. The Clearinghouse has done one where when customers asked about privacy and data security and knowing where their data is, they're all 75, 80% saying, yes, they're very concerned about it. They feel better about knowing that they permissioned it and they were in charge. So I think it's very important amongst consumer base, but consumer and small business and larger firms as well. Given FDX's mandate and the way you describe consumer data access, do you feel ultimately this trend is the thin end of a wedge that we start with financial data, but ultimately these data rights apply all the way up to social? I'm going to try not to boil the ocean. So I'm a very focused on purpose and what our members are focusing on right now, and that is sharing consumer permission financial data. There's other groups out there that talk about open finance or open data. End of the day, I think giving consumers tools and letting them do things is a wonderful idea. You look at what the internet has done for data and information sharing. It's been wildly successful because it's been so free. So we'll let the market decide what comes next. What advice would you give to other groups trying to develop financial data standards out there? There's a few pieces of advice I'd always give. One, I have a preference for market-based solutions because no one will ever be as close to the consumer as, again, firms that are directly dependent on them for their livelihood. Two, you've got to make sure all the members are getting value of any not-for-profit. I don't care if it's a charitable organization, you still have to make sure everyone sees value in their participation because you are asking for their time, their treasure, and their presence to participate. And three, I think you need to always have your mission first and foremost, always be focused on this. How does this tie back to our mission? Are we still working towards that? And if it's not directly tied to that, then you can run yourself afoul. So if you look at not-for-profits or standards that really have stood the test of time, they solve a business problem, they cast a wide net, they are inclusive, they hyper-focus on solving one thing and keep it to that. So I think those are some good guidestones that we took to heart when we stood up FDX. One component in an open banking architecture that exists in some implementations but not in others is a centralized registry, a single place where you can discover all the participants in a given ecosystem. Whether regulatory-driven or market-driven, do you think that piece is important to a functional open banking environment? Well, remember in our five principles, transparency and traceability were key. And in order to have traceability, you do need to identify the nodes in the chain, the links in the chain, if you will. The, I think I, the metaphor I used were all the stops on the subway route. So to that extent, you do need a directory, a phone book. I'm showing my age here, uh, a white pages of members or participants in this space. To the extent, I think everyone needs one. I think there's a demand for that, not unlike there's a demand for DNS in the space. In the development of a standard, one area that is often debated is consent management and consent flows. Do you think that a standard needs to be explicit about what a consent flow looks like? Well, there's a degree of how explicit you are. I think you need to give you know, the different firms involved, the user experience flow, that freedom to make sure your branding, your font, your stylistically items are captured. Each jurisdiction may have different rules about what's disclosed and how in the particular verbiage at a high level. So I think there needs to be some flexibility, but thematically, we are seeing a lot of common threads in the redirect flows, for example, disclosing 
at the app level, what it is you're permissioning and then confirming that or consenting to it at the data source, whether it be a utility company or a bank or a brokerage or an insurance company. So I think thematically, they're very similar. So if you look at CDR UX guides, the open banking in UK UX guide and the ones we have under draft here at FDX, they're all very similar thematically. And I think that's important. I'm a consumer five to 10 years from now. What do I see banks offering me powered by your standard that they can't offer me today? We've got firms at different stages from innovation to late adopters and such. So I think what we're going to see is more, better, faster. And what I mean is more data, more options available in a better format and faster. So we talked about new account opening, mortgage origination, loan origination, perhaps even know your customer's type due diligence, being able to done real time with a higher degree of confidence with light touch. Why? Well, if you have enough signals of a person's identity and they have a good biometric stack, perhaps that allows other things to be done as well. So I think there's some neat opportunities for enhanced security and doing so much, much faster than there's being on today, a truly on-demand world. Do you feel that open banking, FDX, common data standards for the financial services ecosystem, those are the pipes that we're building for the 21st century? There's some of the pipes. And again, we'll find net new uses. Like I said, when I first saw data sharing for budgeting and tax prep, no one ever thought about doing credit score enhancement. No one ever thought about asset and account validation. And yet those are very real uses today. So. Yeah, I think there'll be new things to come as long as we build secure, robust, extensible pipes and a lot of people have a say in what goes into them. That consensus, I think, will allow for a lot of new things to come. Will all the dominant players that exist today survive? Will banks in general survive or will they be swallowed by the GAFAs of the world? That's to be seen. The market will be there. The consumer needs to be served in new and delightful ways. Again, I would be a bit facetious, but I would say stay tuned. That's a great cliffhanger answer for the end. So tune in next time for the answer in the 2025 edition. Don, thank you so much for your time today. Where can our audience find out more about you and the work FDX is up to? Financialdataexchange.org. You can follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn. We'd love to have you. Thank you very much. Back to our original question. Is open banking just a set of regulations? Well, perhaps the capitalized version is, but the little o, little b version seems to be something more. While it still goes by many different names, lowercase open banking is an idea that is taking hold everywhere. In some places, like Europe, it is indeed driven by laws and regulations. However, in other places, like the US, the same goals of competition, innovation, and transparency are being met by the market. Don advises standard builders out there to lean towards more market-based approaches, as they tend to lead to more durable, flexible solutions, solutions that can react to ever-changing consumer needs. Make sure members of your standards body are getting real value back for their time and effort, and always tie your decisions back to your core mission. Whether that's getting rid of risky credential sharing, increasing competition, or giving consumers control of their data, Make sure your goal is clear. Don also points out that open banking is not one size fits all. The road traveled by one region is not necessarily the right road for another. And often the difference comes down to a decision around the role of the regulator and the role of the market. In the end, the answer is different for each region. The best you can do is try to strike the right balance. 
and strive to get all the stakeholders to sit at the same table and collaborate. Instead of getting stuck in the endless debate over which is better, market-driven or regulatory-driven, just get on with it. Because regardless of how you get to open banking, whether pushed by regulation or pulled by market forces, you end up in the same place. A standard, secure and open way for banks to share your financial data. Thanks for listening to Mr. Open Banking, the podcast that explores the ongoing evolution of open banking and its impact on our lives. Make no mistake, the rise of open banking is going to change financial services forever, and we will be covering that story every step of the way. This is your host, A.L. Savan. Until next time. This episode was made possible by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years and creators of the Amplify platform. To learn more, visit axway.com.